0: Morning, glory, and evening, grace, America. The three terrorists are dead in France. One on the loose. We'll bring you updates as they occur. It is time for the Hillsdale Dialogue, which we're going to do today. It is so appropriate to be doing it today because we had Montesquieu scheduled. And when you find out what he wrote about... You'll be amazed at the timeliness of this topic and, of course, breaking news as it occurs. My guest, Dr. Paul Ray, who you have heard on this program many, many times, an authority on French literature and thinking, and, of course, on Montesquieu. Always a, a pleasure to have uh, Paul Ray back with us on the Hillsdale Dialogue, available at com. Professor Ray, Happy New Year to you. It's been a grim week, though. Uh, awful. Are, are you awful. Uh, have you been off to the City of Lights? Uh, yes, Yes, maybe eight nine times. And so, in the in the course of that, have you seen it change over the years from being the most relaxed city in the world to now a city on the a country on the edge, as we speak?
1: Well, actually, in some ways, it's the opposite. Uh, the French were uh, earlier in the fifties and in the sixties a pretty tough lot, and uh, the sort of thing that has happened this week I can't imagine happening at that time because. They'd have rounded people up, and they'd have dealt with them. Uh, they were, they were um, rough. Um, and France had a kind of national spirit and a sense of its own greatness, all the way through the period of De Gaulle uh, and, and even for a time afterwards. I think what's happened now is they've ceded control of their country or parts of their country, the suburbs of Paris, for example, uh, to foreigners. Uh, with foreign ideas and foreign ways, uh, and uh, you know they failed to do what they were so successful in doing in the past, which is inculcate uh what they called republican values uh, into everybody uh, and now they're in they're in trouble, but it's you know it's a it's a general pattern
0: in europe it, but but talk to me a little bit about why the French were particularly susceptible to this.
1: Uh, You know, France is, like the United States, a country with a revolutionary background. And it is a country that has, since uh, 1789, uh, been focused on the rights of man as man. So the consequence is France is open to uh, immigrants to a degree that other countries um, aren't and, and weren't. Uh, just like the United States in that regard. And France had colonies in North Africa, Algeria in particular is very, very important, but there's Tunisia as well. And the consequence is that uh, they um, came to have uh, an Arab minority. Um, you know, much of the way we had an Italian minority, an Irish minority, a Jewish minority, and so forth. Uh, but they've been unable to assimilate the Arab minority. The Italians, the Jews, the uh, Irish, uh, the Slovaks, the Poles.
0: Now the, the Mexicans and the Americans. Central Americans, yeah. Uh,
1: but the Arabs, that many of them, I mean, there are exceptions. This is a problem. You, you use a broad brush. Uh, many of the ones who have come to France have not really become French. They speak the language, of course, because they've learned it there. But they um, want to impose the Sharia on France. That is to say, uh, they're Muslims, and they're Muslims who are committed to the imposition of religious law. I mean, one of the things that we don't understand very well is Islam is a political religion. Um, Christianity has implications for religion, but uh the the church has never directly ruled. Uh, and in fact uh, the you know the the, the church is in, in some sense thinks that it shouldn't directly rule. Uh, and Christianity is not a religion that brings with it a law that is supposed to govern uh, you in uh, all the fine details of your life. It brings a spirit that is supposed to govern the way you, uh, adjudicate issues that come up in your life. Islam, uh, at the heart of it, lies a holy law, and a holy law that has to be enforced. Uh, and, that, and, and, and it demands um, not just respect in the sense that we don't insult it. It demands supremacy.
0: Now, a week ago, uh, Sunday the president of Egypt, al-Sisi, went to the leading university in Cairo and called upon the imams there assembled to reform Islam. Do you think that's possible, Paul Ray? Uh,
1: I'm not going to say it's impossible. What I will say is it has not yet happened. And uh, al-Sisi impresses me uh, as a man with very great insight. Uh, up to now, I didn't know much about him. He was a military guy uh, who took order when the Muslim Brotherhood blew it in Egypt. Uh, but he's clearly um, a, a figure of greater seriousness than we have known thus far, because he understands that there's a fundamental problem. Uh, and the reform of Islam, would, if it were to work, would have to transform it into a, a religion of private life. That is to say, a religion that governs those people who adhere to it and not those people who don't adhere to it, uh, and that governs them in terms of how they conduct themselves with regard to one another and how they conduct themselves with regard to people who are not Muslim. But it would all, you know, it would have to involve um, not toleration, but religious freedom.
0: Now, we we go from there to a French revolutionary writer. I don't know if you will call Montesquieu revolutionary, who was born 100 years before the French Revolution, but who had impact on revolutionaries as long as there have been revolutionaries by virtue of what he wrote. And you brought to my attention, I did not know this, Paul Ray, that his first book was Persian Letters.
1: Yes, yes, yes. It was a scandalous book that he wrote. Uh, It's a novel, and in this novel... Uh, Three Persians come to Europe, uh, and they write letters back to uh, people back in Persia, and they write letters to one another. And so what he asks Europeans to do is to see themselves through the eyes of these three Persians. Uh, And these three Persians are Muslims, so the religious issue uh, of Islam and Christianity comes up at every turn. Uh, Montesquieu uh, is born at about the time of the Glorious Revolution. And he grows
0: up. That a- being the revolution in England, which uh, replaced the would-be Catholic king with William and Mary, without violence, but with the agency of Marlborough. That's exactly right. right.
1: And, and uh, it, the, it, it, it results in a war between England, led by William III, that is to say William of Orange, uh, and the France of Louis XIV. Uh, And there's a war in the 1690s, and then there is a second war uh, that begins about 1702, 1703, and lasts to 1715. It's during that second war that Montesquieu came of age. And he was deeply impressed by the fact that England, which had about a third of the population of France, um, defeated France. Uh, The English and the Dutch in alliance managed to do this. And France had uh, been extremely successful on the European continent for 250 years prior to this time. And the Duke of Marlborough defeats the French.
0: Aren't we obliged at this point to say, for the benefit of Dr. Arne, the Duke of Marlborough, the great-great-great-great-grandfather of Winston Churchill?
1: Uh, That's true, And, and you could even go further than that. Winston Churchill wrote a stunning biography of Marlborough, which is in print from the University of Chicago, uh, in two thick volumes, and it's one of the great reads. Yes, it, it is. It, it is the finest book Churchill wrote.
0: Oh, I think you might get some arguments, but but we'll pass over that for a moment. Let's go back to Montesquieu arriving in the middle of the carnage because it was bloody. Oh, my gosh, it was a bloody war.
1: Yes, and, and uh, Marlborough manages to annihilate the French army four times in that war, starting with the Great Battle of Blenheim uh, in 1703. Uh, and he... he, he it, it shocks France, it, um, uh, it, it brings it to its knees, and it also it shocks it in the sense that the regime is actually in danger. And Montesquieu grows up during this, and he wants to understand what it is that enabled England
0: to do what it did.
1: What it, 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 it is that enabled a modern
0: Carthage to defeat a modern Rome. And when we come back from break, we're going to do that. But I do have to note, for the bit of everyone listening, that this great political theorist, like those who follow him in the United States, is a lawyer. Yes. God <laughs> just, help us all. I just want to point out that the people who wrote the constitutions and the, lo- and the laws and the books upon which there are all proceeding because Dr. Arne and many at Hillsdale seem to have this animus against lawyers are all building on the foundation of lawyers. I'll be right back with Dr. Paul Ray of Hillsdale College. Don't go anywhere except to q4hillsdale.com for all the Hillsdale dialogues and to hillsdale.edu for the latest on anything of the many great things that Hillsdale is doing. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Paul Ray of Hillsdale College on the Hillsdale Dialogue. Dr. Ray is the author of Montesquieu and the Logic of Liberty. No better guest to talk to on a week in which France is front and center. The terrible terrorist assaults, the continuing unrest will bring you lake breaking news as it occurs. But Dr. Ray and I are talking about one of the glories of France, which is the work of uh, the philosopher Montesquieu, also a lawyer, as I pointed out. And when we went to break, Dr. Ray was saying he came of age, meaning... He came of lawyering age and writing age in the middle of the carnage that was the second half of the long war between Queen Anne's England, first William's England, and then Queen Anne's England, and Louis XIV's France. So how did that impact him, Dr. Ray?
1: Well, it, it caused him to have doubts about the viability of the French monarchy uh-huh. and of the French model, which was uh, modeled on Rome and modeled on the notion of glory and conquest and the establishment of universal monarchy and so montesquieu after publishing the persian letters this satirical novel on on french life and on the french church uh... and also on islam uh... he he journeyed to england and uh... he and voltaire both and they spent extended periods there i think in montesquieu's case it was something like a year and a half eighteen months Learned the language, attended Parliament, got to know everybody. And then he came back, and he tried to write a three-part book, one part on ancient Rome, one part on attempts to establish universal monarchy in modern Europe, and the other on England, uh, arguing, uh, uh, this was what he was attempting to do, uh, that the English model, which looked more like Carthage than it looked like Rome. That is to say it was mercantile. It was naval. It was maritime. uh, And it was more interested in peace than in war, but it could fight. And uh, that that, that the future lay with England. Um, And he didn't... he, He published part of this book, because Voltaire published his Philosophical Letters, uh, in 1733, and all hell broke loose in France, and Voltaire had to flee, and it was uh, burned by the public hangman. And Montesquieu had this little book uh, in his hands, uh, in in something like page proofs at the time. He oh. decided that uh, it was prudent to cut, and so he cut everything except the argument about Rome. And then he launched another project, uh, which resulted in his publication in 1748 of The Spirit of Laws. And buried within The Spirit
0: of Laws is this earlier book. Oh, interesting. Now, I've got to go backwards in time a little bit. When he published Persian Letters, um, he had to have had an opinion both about Islam and about Catholicism. What were they?
1: Uh, he was profoundly critical of Islam. Uh, he thought that Islam was uh, closely connected with despotism, uh, and that uh, and 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 he also had enormous respect for the power of religion, for its dominance. Um, so he he did not have high hopes for the Muslim world.
0: And as to the Roman Catholic Church, then of course dominating in France, what did he think of that? also hierarchical and occasionally despotic organization. Uh, he, he
1: he was highly critical. He was more friendly to Protestantism, uh, though he was nominally a Catholic himself. Uh, his wife was a Huguenot, a Protestant. Uh, and he, he was persuaded that Protestantism was more friendly to liberty than Catholicism.
0: I've got to ask, out of this period where you've got Um, Montesquieu and Voltaire working in Rousseau and all these different people coming out of the French soil. How could a despotic, um, aristocratic, authoritarian, Catholic-dominated culture produce such people?
1: Well, you know, the answer is uh, you shouldn't go too far in pushing this notion of it being despotic and authoritarian. Uh, To begin with, the division between the Church and the monarchy opened up a space of freedom because uh, you could be protected by the monarch against the church and by the church
0: against the monarch. Uh-huh. Division uh, of uh, the separation of power.
1: Yeah. yeah, and the second thing is that this was what uh, David Heumann called a civilized monarchy, which is to say the monarch did not pick his successor. Uh, he was monarch by dint of the law, which meant that he was bound to the law, and it was a law-abiding monarchy. In other words, law was not simply the will of the king. Uh, The king was king by law. It was law that made him king, and therefore he had to honor the law. And so in France, you had a body called the Parlement, uh, which were chosen by the king, but once you you became part of the Parlement, he he couldn't boot you out. So it was something like the Supreme Court and the relationship between the United States Supreme Court and the presidency.
0: Now, I'm curious, in the hundred years that come between... um, Montesquieu's birth and the French Revolution, and most people know it, if not from anything else, than from A Tale of Two Cities, something happens in France. What is it that eats away and destroys the credibility and the institutional stability of the monarchy?
1: Ah, that's a good question. Um, In Montesquieu's view, and in my own, it is that France uh, proved incapable of pursuing the project of conquest and glory uh, that was... Tied up closely with the monarchy from the time of Louis the Thirteenth and Louis the Fourteenth on, they lost wars, uh, and uh, the only war they won in the 18th century is called the American Revolution, uh, uh, and and they contributed very greatly to uh, our victory in the American Revolution. Um, you know, there were more uh, French troops at Yorktown than there were American troops.
0: And there was a French fleet off of Yorktown, right? Yes, yeah.
1: right, making Yorktown possible. So it's, uh, But that, that victory bankrupted them. And part of Montesquieu's argument, uh, a critique of the French monarchy as it operated in his time, was that it was not economically viable. That is to say, it was committed to pursuing a policy of conquest that it couldn't fund. Uh, And the consequence is the British could fund things because they didn't care about conquest in Europe. Uh, They cared about trade. uh, And they cared about a balance of power in Europe that would not overwhelm them just off the coast of
0: Europe, you know, at the conclusion of that, I think it's Pitt the Younger starts the sinking fund to again remove the debt that had ridden up uh, during the first set of wars with France, and I think accomplished that if my history is correct. Did did France realize it was teetering on bankruptcy?
1: Yes, yes. I mean, uh, the, the the French monarchy was desperately seeking sources of funds, and from seventeen thirteen, fourteen, fifteen on. Uh, it's always on the edge of bankruptcy. And every time they get into a war, it pushes them further into debt and further into trouble. And what sets off the French Revolution uh, is an attempt to raise taxes.
0: And Uh, we will be back to talk about how it is that Montesquieu came to have such impact upon the framers, what he wrote and how it traveled here and how it so deeply got into the water they were drinking and what it manifested itself in the form of not just the Constitution, but the declaration with Dr. Paul Ray of Hillsdale College. This week, my interlocutor in the Hillsdale Dialogue, all of the Hillsdale Dialogues, every single hour, back to January of 2013, are available at hugh dot com, And everything that Hillsdale teaches and all their free online courses, and they are abundant, are available at hillsdale.edu, as is your opportunity to sign up for your New Year's resolution to receive free up- Of Charge in Primus, the speech digest of Hillsdale College. Stay where you are. I'll be right back with Dr. Paul Ray right after this. Thirty-four minutes after the hour, Americans. Hugh Hewitt is the Hillsdale Dialogue, the last radio hour of the week, even a week as tragic as this one with the slaughter of innocents in France and the ongoing uh, pursuit of those who are connected to the crimes and all of their networks, and uh, really a tense world as ISIS metastasizes and sends out its poisonous tendrils everywhere. Uh, We're focused on France today on the Hillsdale Dialogue with Dr. Paul Ray, himself an expert in the work of Montesquieu. Uh, All of the Hillsdale Dialogue is available at hugh4hillsdale.com, and the button is over at hughhewitt.com, and you just go direct to hillsdale.edu. So, Dr. Ray, let, let's start by saying, if you can, if you're talking to your freshman at Hillsdale and you're giving them the introductory five minutes on why it's important to read the spirit of the laws, what do you tell them?
1: Well, when, the minute it's published, 1748, it sells like hotcakes. Everybody reads it. It is the fundamental work for Rousseau, who read it immediately after it was published and took 500 pages of notes on it. Wow. It's the most important book for Edmund Burke. Uh, It is the most important book for the American Founding Fathers. It is cited more often in pamphlets and in newspapers in North America between 1762 and 1800 than any other work, and Montesquieu is cited more often than any other writer more often than Locke, more often uh, than um, Blackstone, who is another disciple of Montesquieu. Uh, It is the Bible of political men, all the way through, say, the time of Hegel.
0: Can I I, I, pause here? How does it just physically travel? I mean, he's not that well-known, right? I mean, Persian letters might have been a bestseller, but he's still one guy from an obscure family in France. Right, but everything that he writes becomes a bestseller, and everything
1: he writes gets translated. Uh, you know, the Spirit of Laws gets translated in English immediately, uh, and it gets translated into Dutch and into Russian and into German and into Italian and into Greek and so forth. And this is true for the Persian letters. It's true for um, his considerations on the causes of the greatness of the Romans and their decline. The little book on Rome and then of the spirit of laws. Uh, so it is, uh, even though it's a big, massive book, it's very entertaining.
0: So he, he's a bestseller. He's a, a Daniel Silver or a C.J. Box or a Ludlam or something like that. Everybody knows, and they wait for his next book.
1: That's, that's exactly right. And it is the book in the 18th century that you study if you are interested in political questions. And the 18th century is the great period in modern times for political questions they take uh, priority over everything else uh... you know think about the american revolution think about the french revolution and the literature to which they gave rise This massive outpouring of pamphlets and newspaper articles and so forth and montesquieu stands behind it all the arguments that take place in um, the United States over the Constitution are arguments against one school of Montesquieu readers and uh, another school of Montesquieu readers. Huh. Uh, and the same thing is true about the French Revolution.
0: All right, so today. he's in, undeniably at the center of all this. What is it that makes it so impactful?
1: Um, he is the great reviver of republicanism. In other words, he writes in a time of monarchy. Um, everywhere, uh, and what he believes he has discovered in England is what he calls uh, a republic disguised as a monarchy
0: the, the, can we go back to his little book on the Roman Republic yeah uh, and and define what he understood to be a republic based upon that before we go forward to his hidden republic within a monarchy.
1: Well, the key, the key difference is uh, that republics involve the government of uh, more than one. Um, but the larger issue is that republics uh, can make what he calls a correction, of course, fairly easily. It's very hard for a monarchy to make a correction, of course, unless the monarch dies and is replaced by somebody else uh new men usually do bring new measures but in republics what happens is you have new men all the time because you have elections from time to time and things are discussed and debated and so the thing that interests him about rome is that rome was capable very easily capable of a correction of course and he points to england in in his little book on the romans as the modern example that is capable of a correction of course
0: when we come back from break for our last segment we'll talk at length about in the spirit of the laws what he prescribes what he suggests and how the framers picked up on those suggestions as they sat down in Philadelphia don't go anywhere dr. Paul Ray of Hillsdale College is my guest on the Hillsdale dialogue on a dark week we're talking about bright ideas on the Hugh Hewitt show 44 minutes after the hour America it's Hugh Hewitt on this week's Hillsdale dialogue as we've continued to follow all the news out of France and it's grim and and it's that continues and people are tense around the world. But there's always hope because republics exist and freedom gathers wherever they do. And Dr. Paul Ray is an expert in the guy who was the expert in republics, Montesquieu, his spirit of the laws, if you've been listening. So extraordinarily influential throughout the world, but especially in the American colonies. So what's at the heart? What's his prescription that Jefferson and Madison and all the others pick up on?
1: Well, here's what his concern is. The fundamental principle, uh, and, he, and he studied history, so this is this is what he's come to, is that uh, political regimes are relative to the extent of territory on which they exist. Uh, he argues that if you have a massive territory like China, or the Ottoman Empire, you're going to have a despotism, uh, because the emergencies require concentration of power in the hands of one man. Uh, uh, a, a polity of moderate size tends to be a monarchy, that is to say a civilized monarchy that, that is governed by the rule of law. His own France. Yes, and republics uh, historically were uh, limited to um, cities, small communities. And his Roman book is about the way a city begins as a republic and turns into a despotism as it becomes a great imperial power now what what's interesting about the spirit of laws is he thinks he's found a way around this problem, uh, and one aspect of it is federalism. that is to say uh, you can box at the level of a monarchy but still be a republic if you are a uh, part of a federation of republics such as the Dutch or the swiss
0: did he did he point to the Athenian League or the Spartan League as well?
1: No, because those were empires, okay. We're talking about federal states.
0: Okay. With equal, um, equal partners, not a dominant partner.
1: That's, that's exactly right. The second thing is he points to the separation of powers, which enables England to be larger uh, than the ancient cities uh, and to maintain liberty because power is divided, but also it is dispersed in terms of function, executive, legislative, and judicial power. And the Americans face this as a practical problem. That is to say, they are separating themselves from England. And the question is, what kind of government can they sustain, given the circumstances in which they exist? And their problem is, the territory is vast. That's a great advantage uh, if you want to be a great nation that can defend itself, because you have resources. Right. But it can be a disadvantage, because you have a government at a distance from the people, Uh, And governments that are at a distance from the people because literally of the physical extension of the territory uh, have a tendency to drift towards despotism. Uh, The way to avoid that is federalism and the separation of powers. So he is fundamental for the political science of the American Founding Fathers. And the debates that take place between the federalists and the anti-federalists are all built on what they have learned from Montesquieu, and they're trying to think through their problems of their time in light of what he has learned from his long study of history.
0: So go back with me to the framing of the Virginia Plan, which Madison brings with him to Philadelphia in 1787. How much of that can we uh, find in Madison's notes to depend upon the spirit of the laws?
1: Um, it's, it, it, Madison looks to two figures. He looks to Montesquieu and he looks to David Hume, who was a contemporary of Montesquieu's in Scotland and a great admirer of Montesquieu. Um, uh, there's some reason to think that the two long chapters in the spirit of laws, um, that get published in English right away in Edinburgh are actually translated by David Hume himself. Ah, um, uh, he is certainly behind their publication, but they read like David Hume. Um, uh, it can't be proved that he did it, but I, I'll i tell you, I believe it. Uh, just every time I go back and look at that translation, I think, "Whoa!" Um, it, the the inspiration. What he's doing in that is he is asking the question: Can we establish a republic on an extended territory in America and make it work? Uh, and so his, his his reflections in the in the you know, in his preparations for the Virginia plan and the little essay that he wrote uh, prior to the convention and in the deliberations of the convention, he's wrestling with the questions posed by Montesquieu and he is inspired to a considerable degree by Montesquieu. Though he also thinks Montesquieu's wrong on certain questions and that his own political science
0: can be in certain regards, an improvement on Montesquieu. Okay, we'll come to that. i got to ask, though, about Montesquieu uh, and your deep study of him. Did he intend to change the world? I mean, did he sit down with the intention of actually having people in a young world read what he wrote and act on it? Yes. How interesting. He is is a legislator. How interesting. But you're also somewhat... Ambitious, if you think you can get people to set up a government based upon what you write.
1: Uh, He is ambitious in the way Plato uh, and Aristotle and Machiavelli and Hobbes are ambitious, yes.
0: You know, it's different because Madison is actually charged with doing it. You know, he has to get it done. So you can see him going to the library shelves and saying, I'll read Montesquieu. But Montesquieu, when he writes it, has to count on a Madison being there because he has no standing in France, right?
1: No. Well, I mean, they read him, but no, he doesn't. He has no political authority. In fact... Uh, His little trip to England, things that he said at parties in England got back to the French government. He wanted to be a French diplomat, and they would not take him.
0: So we have a minute left. So our debt to him uh, on this week of French stories is enormous. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, What would you have people read first?
1: Um, If they want fun, the Persian letters. If they're interested in Rome and its, its trajectory, the little book on Rome... But the great book is The Spirit of
0: Laws. Is it accessible still? The Federalist is accessible. Is The Spirit of the Laws accessible? Oh,
1: yes. And, and it's not only accessible, it's great fun. You love Montaigne. He is inspired as a writer by Montaigne. So there's this playfulness that huh. you run into all the time in Montesquieu. Well, he's
0: a lawyer, Paul. I mean, that explains much of his ability and facility with words, right? <sighs> <laughs> My wife is a lawyer. Dr. Paul Ray (laughs) from Hillsdale College. What a great introduction to Montesquieu. Talk to you again soon. Don't go anywhere, America. I'll be back to wrap up this week's Hugh Hewitt Show.